Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, I'll be continuing my look at Mules and Men by Zora Neale Hurston, a work of anthropology published in 1935. And it looks mostly at uh, American folklore, particularly African-American folklore, as it existed in the 1920s and 1930s, when she collected most of these, when she collected all of these stories in the, in the late 1920s and, and early 1930s. In the last episode, I looked mostly at the first part of Mules and Men, which covers the folklore and the folk tales that she collected, mostly in Florida, where how she collects it from different um, parts of African-American life. And I talked about the structure of the novel and, and how I found it really interesting and in how Zero Neil Hurston intertwined the her own story of investigating and discovering these stories and interacting with the people that she grew up with, because she goes back to her hometown to do this. And then she she mixes that with the little vignettes, the little stories she, she gets. And she ends up collecting, I don't know, over 10 chapters. I want to say a little bit short of 100 or so little, nice little vignettes. But uh, by tying these stories, some of which go back to biblical times, some of which go back to slave times, some of which are much more recent in their origin, you know, she ties those all to the living experience of the black people in the, in the South. And um, many of these stories are just worth, worth looking at. I, I do think Mills and Men is a, is a volume worth getting a hold of and looking at or printing out even. I don't think it's public domain in the United States yet, unfortunately. I think that's the case with a lot of Zora Neale Hurston's works. Um, but if you can get a hold of these stories, I, I think they're really, really striking. They're, they're pretty much all written in dialect, which is something if you've read like Charles Chestnut or some of the other Holland Renaissance writers you are familiar with. But it's done really well here. And if, certainly if you've read other Zora Neale Hurston works like The Eyes Are Watching Guys, you're familiar with the way she was a master at um, telling stories in this African-American vernacular dialect. And she does that throughout here. And you just got a wide, wide mix of stories uh, exploring things from, you know, uh, the origin of race, the origin of slavery, the, you know, religious aspects are dealt with. Um, really, on the surface, more superficial folklore, like why, you know, you know, things about the origin of certain aspects of alligators or catfish or whatever, that kind of common kind of folkloric stories. And um, a lot about race, though. That's really the heart of a lot of these stories is the color line and the race line. And you really see it maybe at its strongest in stories of black people trying to outsmart white people or white people examining black people do things and misinterpreting what they're doing. Right, and I talked a little bit last time about how I think that's really the point that Zora Neale Hurst is trying to get at in this collection is that maybe white people are taking folklore a little too seriously and, and making too much of it when in fact they should be a little more chill about the whole thing. And I think she herself is quite chill in the way she presents it 
and, and she doesn't do much interpretation of these stories, obviously. She just kind of throws them out there, right? And, um, yeah, so the first half of Mules and Men, actually the first two-thirds or so, deal with um, this, this folklore, right? And the second half, well, actually it's part two, but it's only about a last third or so of the bulk of the, of the, of the work, is called Hoodoo. And this really looks at American, or I should say U.S. voodoo, right? She, she, she wrote another book called Tell My Horse, which looks at Caribbean voodoo in a lot of detail. And I'll be looking at that in the next couple episodes. But this part looks at voodoo as it manifests in, the, in North America. So this section has seven short chapters. Um, and yeah, it's only about 60 pages or so. It makes about seven chapters. And it's written in a very different style than the first part of Mules and Men. The first part has that cutting between her experiences in, in Florida and her, the, her sources, talking with her sources, the contemporary aspect of it, looking at these as real traditions, and then the stories cut between. The, in part two, Hoodoo, she just tells her story of interacting with, with American voodoo. Uh, well, I guess all voodoo is kind of an American thing, but North American voodoo. She, she talks about her experiences interacting with it, um, and she does interact with, she just brings stories into it, but she really approaches it in a very, very different way. She doesn't have that, that cutting um, between the story and her narrative. It's just all her narrative. And that way, it's, it's a bit like uh, Tell My Horse. Tell My Horse has that same style where she's not cutting it up with these different stories. But the stories are still there, and they're, they're presented just as part of her overall story. Um, so here's a bit what she writes um, in the first chapter of this part two hoodoo. Uh, New Orleans is now and has ever been the hoodoo capital of America. Great names and rights that vie with those of Haiti in deeds that keep alive the powers of Africa. Hoodoo or voodoo, as pronounced by the whites, is burning with a flame in America and all the intensity of a suppressed religion. It has its thousands of secret adherents. It adapts itself like Christianity to its locale, reclaiming some of its borrowed characteristics to itself, such as fire worship as signified in the Christian church by the altar of the candles and the belief in the power of water to sanctify the baptism. Belief in magic is older than writing, so nobody knows how it started. The way we tell it, Hoodoo started way back there before anything. Six days of magic spells and mighty words, and the world with its elements above and below were made. And now God is learning, take back a seventh day of rest. When the eighth day comes around, he'll start making new again. So that is how she introduces this narrative. She, she grounds it in a particular place, New Orleans, and that's where she spends a lot of this I think all of this chapter she spends in New Orleans, interacting with these practitioners of, of, of voodoo. Then she ties it to a very particular African-American subculture, which she thinks is alive and well. I, that's an important point she makes in this section, that voodoo is very, very, very much alive in the United States. It's not a dead tradition. It's not a foreign import. It's part of the American tradition. And it's a suppressed tradition. It's a tradition that's not respected, not given as equality, but it's very, very much alive and, and actually acted out upon. And then she talks about the deep roots of it, and she takes it all the way back to the origins of, 
of the universe. And here, I don't think she's being a theist here, saying God created the universe, and she's not a she's not such a practitioner or believer in voodoo. Directly, she partakes in it, as an anthropologist will partake in the customs and rituals of of, of the cultures they're a part of. But on in her view, or, or she describes it, the voodoo tradition draws its legacy back to the earliest stories in the Bible, to, to Genesis, right? So she even suggests here that people who practice voodoo in America believed that Moses was one of the first major practitioners of voodoo. Quote, Moses was the first man who ever learned God's power, compelling words, and it took him 40 years to learn 10 words. So he made 10 plagues and 10 commandments, but God gave him 10 rod, gave him his rod for his presence, present, and showed him to the back part of his glory. Then too, Moses could walk out in the sight of men, but Moses would never have stood before the burning bush if he had not married Jethro's daughter. Jethro was a great hoodoo man. Jethro could tell Moses, could carry power as soon as he saw him. Now, obviously what's going on here is you have, in, at least in Hurston's view, these are African traditions. She said as much that, um, I think I, somewhere here, yeah, she, she mentioned this as an African thing. Yeah, all the powers of Africa is the way she said it in this chapter. And later on in, in Tell My Horse, another book, she focuses heavily on the African influence on American religion. So you have that, but of course that gets mixed with Christianity. And it gets mixed with the religion that is imposed on enslavement and women by white masters and by just the fact of being in America in a culture defined in many ways by Europeans at the expense of, of course, Africans and, and native people. And then it gets mixed. And so these, these African traditions sort of get grafted onto Christianity. And that's the, that's how we get this, that voodoo becomes something alive in the Bible because it's, it's the source of the magic that we see in the old Testament. I think it's really, really cool what she does here. And I'm assuming she's getting this from the people she's talking to about voodoo in, in, in New Orleans. She makes another point early on in this chapter that voodoo is not, she's, she's countering the traditions that see voodoo kind of in voyeuristic uh, terms, seeing them as, as kind of weird cultish magic, and instead seeing it as, as like, sort of dark magic. I mean, that's the thing Emma, that she really wants to counter. She wants to take voodoo seriously as actually white magic, good magic. Um, not necessarily that it takes as real, but the people who practice it believe they are doing good. Not at all. Actually, there are actually recipes for spells to kill people here. But she more or less sees this, that the voodoo practitioners see themselves in the sight of God. And popular culture at the time saw voodoo really in these dark terms. And I think that's still true to a large extent today, where voodoo is seen as kind of a, just one step away from devil worship or some kind of weird um, kind of, you know, the, the zombie stuff, the raisin from the dead, all that kind of magic that's got kind of these dark connotations in mainstream American culture. Uh, here's what she says about this. Nobody knows for sure how many thousands in America are warmed by the fires of hoodoo because the worship is bound in secrecy. It is not the accepted theology of the nation, and so believers conceal their fate. 
Brothers from sister, husband from wife. Nobody can say where it begins or ends. Mouths don't empty themselves unless the ears are sympathetic and knowing. This is why the voodoo ritualistic orgies of Broadway and popular fiction are so laughable. The profound silence of the initiated remains what it is. Hoodoo is not a drum beating and dancing. There are no moon worshippers among the Negroes in America. Unquote. So it's a secret tradition, but it's widespread, and but it's spread through, you know, with a with a bit of a security culture behind it. You know, people don't openly declare their fondness for voodoo. It's there's like family secrets. It's it's things that may be hidden for many years from other people, because it is so frowned upon by mainstream culture. Um, and this is a time, and if we take Du Bois's argument about the Harlem Renaissance that the goal of black art is to integrate black people into, into American culture and to articulate the contribution that black people can make to America and not to just expose life and all its you know, kind of warts and all um, approach because that may hold back the struggle for equality. Right, Hurston here just really wants. She's an she's been anthropo she's been a very good anthropologist here, I think, and actually trying to say just what is there and how do you get at that? How do you understand that if you have the security culture around voodoo? The only way to do that is to spend a lot of time with these people and to really engage in their ideas and talk with them and discuss with them, and that's what she does. She spends months with some of these people. She talks about um, one guy. She spends five months um, studying voodoo with uh, in New Orleans. And she partakes in various rituals uh, for various reasons. Um, and that's what you get over the course of these seven chapters. And it's, just, it's in a sense, it's, it's like the first half in that we get Zora Neale Hurston kind of coming to know these rituals. But while in the folktales part, it's stuff you get the sense she sort of knew before. Because these are people she grew up with. These are people she was around. These are stories she heard. In fact, I think at one point she says she knew these bear rabbit stories, bear gator stories, whatever, from before. <clears throat> but with the voodoo, it's something new. It's something, it's really a separate culture from what she is used to. And she has to really get into it. And she does. She, and again, I think she's a very, very good anthropologist in diving into the reality of, of, of voodoo in, in, as it's alive in America. And that means taking part in spells, taking part in rituals, doing going through these processes. And she really does, goes to some pretty far lengths to experience this. Um, she's, um, chapter two, for instance, describes one large ritual that she's involved with. It seems to be some kind of initiation ritual. Uh, quote, I entered the old Pinko Stuckle house in the Vieux Carré at 9 o'clock in the morning with a parcel of needed things. Turner placed the new underwear on the big altar, prepared the couch with a snakeskin cover upon which I was to lie for three days. With the help of the other members of the College of Hoodoo Doctors called together to initiate me, the snakeskins I had brought were made into garments for me to wear. And the coiled, one was coiled into a high headpiece, this crown. One was looped. One had loops attached to the slips of my arms so they could be worn as a shawl, and the other was made into a girdle for my loins. All places have significance. The garments were placed on the small altar in the corner, the throne and the snake. The great one was called upon to enter the garments and dwell there. I was made ready at three o'clock in the afternoon, naked as I came into the world. I was stretched face downward, my navel to the snakeskin cover, 
And there began my three-day search for a spirit that might accept me or reject me according to his will. Three days my body must lie silent and fasting while my spirit went wherever those spirits must go that seek answers never given to men as men. I could have no food, but a pitcher of water was placed on a small table at the head of the couch, and my spirit might not waste time in search of water, which should be spent in search of the power giver. The spirit must have water, and if none had been provided, it would wander in search of it. And evil spirits might attack it if it wandered about dangerous places. If it should be severely injured, it may never return to me. For 69 hours, I lay there. I had five psychic experiences and awoken at last to a feeling of hunger, with no feeling of hunger, only one of exaltation, end quote. So, you know, I, I'm kind of coming at this, I can't help but come at this in kind of a William Jamesian sense, in that religion and religious experiences are, are things, are experiences just in the world that people have that are real. Those experiences are real, right? And even if someone is not religious and can't really dig those experiences, it doesn't mean they're any less real to the people who experience them, right? And here, Zora Neale Hurston goes through great lengths to experience uh, or have a religious experience, and she has it. And it's quite, you know, you know, it seems to have meant something to her. She seems to have had some outcome from that. And that's really a feeling we get throughout um, this second part is just how hard Zora Neale Hurston had to work to bring herself into this, into this culture. So what do we learn from all this? Well, we learn that, of course, Voodoo is real. It's something that's practiced in the South. It's it's used for everything from like the for marriage to for courtship. And of course, it's used for revenge as well, as popular culture kind of emphasizes. But that's only one small part of of what voodoo is about. And I think she wants to talk about it as a real living religious tradition. And I, I think she does a very good job in in getting there. So the second part of Mules and Men focuses mostly on, on this voodoo stuff. And I think that's going to draw some, some readers to it. Um, the first half I kind of like more because I, I, I rather enjoyed more the, these different stories, the Jack or John stories, the, the stories of the, the trickster devil. I mean, those are really great. Like the devil as a trickster is, a, is such a wonderful foil against the image of the devil in white religious um, texts, right? The, it's just pure evil, right? But the devil almost always appears here as a trickster, someone who could be outwitted, outsmarted. I love that stuff. I, I like those, those Brother Rabbit stories that are there. So I kind of enjoyed the first part more. And, but if you are interested in voodoo, I think you know, this is really a text to look at because it's, I think it's one of the first books to really take seriously this tradition. I, I, I know Lafcadio O'Hearn deals somewhat with this in his writings, but this is, this is, this is the first book of African-American folklore written by an African-American, as far as I know. At least that's what the, kind of the Wikipedia entry says about this. So I'll take that for what it is, uh, at least in North America. And it's notable for that. And therefore it's, it's probably the first text, one of the earliest texts to look at voodoo from an African-American perspective. And I think she does a really good job and not just observing it, but actually taking part in it and, and, and making it part of her life the same way she does the stories in the first half of it, that she doesn't just talk about these objectively as a, 
as a neutral chronicler, someone writing these things down, she says, no, that these are part of my life. These are part of my history and it's part of my stories. And she tries to do the same thing with voodoo. But even though it's separate from her experience, she has to take that step and, and take part in those, those rituals. Um, so that pretty much does it. Um, there's a few other things in Mules and Men that are notable. We got a nice little glossary that deal with some of the major archetypes in black folklore at the time, like the Jack John character. Of course, um, that's the cultural hero. Almost all these heroes in these stories we got are Jack or John. That's, uh, you know, often they were enslaved men and women. But th these are the, the simple folk who can outsmart the devil. Uh, we got John Henry here, uh, the image of God. This is interesting um, because God's somewhat else, sometimes outsmarted in these stories, but more more often he's just kind of benevolent observer of events. Uh, here's what she says in the glossary: It is singular that God never finds fault, never censors the Negro. He finds fault, he sees fault, but expects nothing different. He is lacking in bitterness, as is the Negro storyteller himself, in circumstances that ordinarily would call to pity. The devil is not the terror that he is in European folklore. He is a powerful trickster who often competes successfully with God. There is a strong suspicion that the devil is an extension of the story makers, while God is the supposedly impenetrable white masters who are nevertheless defeated by the Negroes. So we got different stories here. Then we have an appendix with a bunch of songs that Zorniel herself collected. Um, John Henry, of course, everyone knows that song. Uh, East Coast Blues, that's a famous one. But some others I don't, including the one I use as the bumper for the series. Um, Mule on the Mount, um, songs I didn't quite you know, know about. But it was actually hard for me to find modern recordings of some of these songs, even old recordings of some of these songs. So they kind of, ex they seem to exist. I mean, I'm sure the recordings were made at some point, but you know, from the YouTube uh, generation, these kind of exist only on the, on the text. A lot of these. So we have an appendix that has a lot of these songs, and then we have an appendix that has basically voodoo spells, voodoo rituals. Uh, like if you need to rent a horse, if you have to go to court, if someone has recently died, uh, if you need a love potion, if, if your man is not coming home to you often, what do you do? Um, and various quote-unquote quote paraphernalia of conjure and different um, potions for spells for curing things, everything from gonorrhea to syphilis to blindness to uh, uh, poison. So this is just, a, these are actual recipes, things that, that, that she's collected and studied. Uh, some of these are mentioned in the text itself, but some of them just appear in the appendix. So anyways, that's that along with my first earlier episode is my overall review of Mules and Men. Uh, sorry for this one being a little bit short. I've I usually go over. I usually go too long in these episodes, so it's, it's good to keep it a more reasonable length. Um, that was my original plan when I started this whole podcast, is to keep things within 20 minutes, and I failed almost every time. But, um, you know, it's better It's it's when I don't go blow by blow, scene by scene, like I do sometimes with the novels. It's it's easier to keep stuff within 20 minutes. So anyways, that's, that's my thoughts on Mules and Men. Really interesting, wonderful book. Uh, I actually like this stuff more than I like Zora Neale Hurston's fiction. Um, next up, I'll look at the first half of Tell My Horse, which is her look at the Caribbean. So we'll look at Jamaica and Haiti and a few other places that are mentioned in there. We'll go back to look at voodoo, but in a different cultural environment. 
Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to talking with you about that book. So uh, for now, if you have any other comments, if you have any thoughts about Mules and Men by Zernoli Hurston, anything I missed, anything I didn't talk about, anything I misinterpreted, anything I got wrong, please let me know. I will be very grateful to have your opinions. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a, you know, a review on iTunes would help me a lot, out a lot. But um, anyway, you want to support the podcast by sharing it, let other people know about it, would really be great. So anyways, uh, that's all for now. Uh, I'll see you next time with Tell My Horse. My thoughts on this part of Tell My Horse by Zero Hurston. I'll see you then. It must be the hellfire captain. Anna told her, must be the hellfire captain. He had blue eyes. Lord, Lord, he had blue eyes. Oh, don't you hear them? A cool, cool boy, people are red.